Hello. Hey there. How's it going? Hey, I am. I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, yesterday, I had my admissions interview at George Fox, and I am on pins and needles to find out if I get into the counseling program. And I'm just super anxious to hear. I it felt like a whole four hour long verbal Rorschach test where I didn't know if I had the right answers or not. And it was just like, I don't know, either let me in or don't. I don't know what I did. So that's where I'm at. That's where my head is at. And yeah, how about you? I'm doing okay. I have had a lot going on and periodically things trigger anxiety for me. And so I took today off to try to deal with that anxiety and... That was partially successful, though not entirely. I don't know what it is that I expected to have happen. I've just memorized. There are certain rules in my life that I know I have to follow, whether I feel like they're going to be helpful or not, or I feel like they are helpful or not. And one of them is when I hurt, hit certain spaces in my head, I just need to take an extra day off to kind of get back to a healthy mental emotional space and this was one of those days okay well i am super thrilled that you have the opportunity to act on that and can notice that that's a cool thing yeah it now that i'm thinking about it feels a little bit weird to announce to the world but whatever uh <laughs> folks who are listening you now know a little bit more about my mental health than you ever wanted to I imagine that at least one or two was going to relate, if not many, many more. Sure. So, well, when you are in a good mental state of mind, what is on your mind? <laughs> well, part of what I did today was finish a book that I have wanted to talk to you about for a long time. I have a category of book that I refer to as the best book I've never read. And for years <laughs> and years, the best book I'd never read was uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And then I finally finished it and it was amazing. And uh, for the last couple of years, the best book I've never read was Eugene Peterson's The Contemplative Pastor. Mm. I, I'd read the first two or three chapters which are not long, maybe three or four times. I mentally and verbally regularly refer to them and had never finished it. And now I've actually finished it. And I am dying to talk to you specifically about this because, first of all, it talks about pastoral ministry and it seems like one of these books that I think pastors in our era should read because it's seeking to have a dialogue with the contemporary assumptions that most of us have about pastoral ministry. And I'm specifically curious to talk to you about this because you are finishing the official degree that you get if you want to be a pastor. 
And so right. if the goal of that degree is to equip and train you to be a pastor, certain assumptions about what a pastor could be or should be go into the development of that program and therefore are transferred into you. And so as a you know lifelong Christian who has seen pastors at work and a recent pastor school graduate, uh, <laughs> I think this conversation about what Peterson is advocating for in regards to the contemplative pastor is a really fascinating conversation. I I would love that. One, I'm going to read this book someday, but I have not read it yet. So it's still on that bookshelf, best books I've never read. But more than that, I am very intrigued by this conversation. And especially right now, just as you talked about where I'm at in life, and I might have I mentioned this on the podcast a few weeks ago. Somebody asked me, okay, now that you finished your MDiv or about to finish your MDiv, are you going to take a church? Was their way of phrasing it. Are you going to serve in a pastoral capacity? And my response was kind of a, a full admission of something that had been rolling around in my head for a while. I don't want to run a church. So I don't want to serve in a pastoral role because I don't want to run a church. And I think if I get the vibe, I mean, I've read enough of Peterson to think that this is a safe assumption. He also didn't want to run a church. Uh, In fact, I think he used a mild expletive to talk about what it was like to run a church. So I think I'm interested to hear from your perspective as a pastor who often spends his time running a church and somebody who's just read Peterson, who kind of rejected a lot of that model, I want to hear, like, how does this all fit together? Because you talk about seminary. Seminary seems to emphasize things that don't fit the day-to-day life experience of the pastors that I talk to. It emphasizes good theology and church history and preaching and some pastoral counseling and so just good, you know, church vision and mission kind of ideas and being a good exegete of the Bible, none of which has anything to do with running a church. It's not emphasized in seminary. And having spent the last four years not having it be emphasized, I just don't want to do what pastors tend to have to do. Yeah, no, and I live the daily life of running a church. Right, I spend hours in planning center services, organizing the minute-by-minute plan of how we're going to run some services this weekend. I uh, spend hours each week figuring out what we need to do to make sure we keep our building up and running. I spend hours every week organizing and planning and responding to how we're going to run events. I edit videos and I plan videos. So I do a lot of running a church, a Mm -hmm. lot of running a church. And, you know, I have maybe 200 underlined passages in this book, and I don't think I underlined this, so I don't know where it was. For all the listeners out there, 
200 quotes. So get your cup of coffee now. Have a nice seat. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So chapter one, page six, quote number one. <laughs> right. No, um, I will pull up some quotes. But one thing that I wish I had uh, underlined, he talks about the fact that it is necessary to do the work of running a church. And it's necessary to do so with joy and happily so. But that can't be one's identity, and it can't be one's primary thing. I think what he's trying to say is, that's the stuff you got to do so you can get to do the things you want to do. And what he's really writing about is, what needs to be that inner circle of the real things that matter? What are those things that can't get lost in the shuffle? Yeah, so I'm curious... What did you pull away? Like, what is the Josh from Missouri takeaway for what those things are? What should be central? This is a great question. And one of the things he says that I was really challenged by is that prayer should be central and busyness should be non-central. He has a whole chapter about how important it is for the pastor to not be busy. And it is literally the, after the introductory chapter, it is the first chapter. And I think he's setting us up with that chapter to say, look, if you don't guard your time, the things that have to get done will override the other stuff. And he highlights prayer quite a bit in It is a running theme throughout the book. Prayer for me feels like an odd pastoral activity, if I'm being fully honest. Mm. Prayer is not on my job description. Prayer is not something I'm paid to do, which is fascinating to me. I mean, it is. like I would have never thought to put it in a job description, so I'm not blaming anybody, but in the context of this conversation, wow, that's telling. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, this is not intended. Anything I say evaluatively of my current role is not an evaluation or criticism of someone else. I wrote my job description. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not trying to throw stones here. I can freely talk about it because I wrote it. Yeah, but it's funny. Like, had I written it for you, like, I would have been in the same boat. I would not have included prayer. But it's funny because I was talking to a pastor at my church the other day, and one of the core values of the pastoral staff is work hard, Sabbath harder. And it's really trying to unlock this very concept of you have got to be embedded in rest and in in connection with God and connection with your family, that has to remain a constant, even though you're going to work really hard for this church. Absolutely. Well, but, and I, I think it goes even beyond Sabbath rhythms. Sabbath rhythms tend to be weekly rhythms. If I were to look at the daily rhythms of most pastors I have known, they are A, making a distinction of private devotions and 
their work life. And B, they are fitting in most of their prayer time into their private life time. It is not blocked off on their schedule for their work day. It's not Mm. like nine o'clock, I have a meeting with Sally, 10 o'clock, I have a meeting with God, and 11 o'clock, I have a meeting with John. It's, I get up, I pray for, and if I'm being honest, I bet the average for the pastors I talk to, I pray for 15 minutes, read my Bible for 15 minutes on a good day, and then I go about the work, and the work is crunching through emails and projects and planning and programs and events, and there is not time set aside in that work schedule for God, because there's too much other stuff that needs to get done. Well, and that's my question, honestly, as I think about this. I'm thinking like, okay, so who who needs to change things up here? Does the individual pastor need to change things up? Maybe. Does the system itself need to change? Because this isn't just an individual pastor thing. This is like this is how churches operate. This is how the pastoral role is constructed. These are the expectations of a hiring body, whatever that hiring body is, when they when they hire a pastor. And so Absolutely. What needs to change is kind of one level of the question, but on a deeper level, how? Like how did Eugene Peterson get to a point where he felt like he was embodying the very things he's writing about because that can't have been easy. So one shift that I think is necessary that moves us away from a business model. Everything we're talking about, clocking hours, job descriptions, hiring teams, interview for hiring, all of this is strictly in a business model, right? Like that is 20th century business model speaking. Mm. And when you address that model, you are hired to do something. Whereas I think it is more accurate to say in Peterson's mind, pastors exist to be something, not to do something. Yeah, this came up. I think I mentioned last week, I'm reading Tom Nelson's book, The Healthy Pastor or The Flourishing Pastor. And Mm -hmm. he talks about this in terms of performance reviews and how performance reviews almost never involve how are you growing and flourishing as a follower of Christ. It has nothing to do with what you are being or what you are becoming. It has everything to do with what you're doing and how well you're doing it. And that is an unhealthy place. I mean, what you value is what you measure. And if that is what the church is measuring a pastor by, it is setting up that pastor for ultimate failure because it's not measuring the right things. It's not putting the right emphasis there. And so pastors are not going to be just by default, by the way the system is constructed, as focused on being and becoming, because that's not what's measured. Absolutely. Well, and even, and I'm, I mean this to be a question, not a statement, performance reviews, 
we only measure what matters. That is still all business language. <laughs> Do you really sure. think that for the first 1800 years of the church's life, anybody was saying either of those things? Right. The church did fine before performance reviews existed. And the church did fine before anybody measured anything. I, yet, I think I think the definition of fine is, I don't know. I, I feel like church history bears a very mixed result of how the church performed prior to 1800. So Sure. I, I mean to say, at least some churches th- have thriven <laughs> prior to... Is that is that like akin to Divin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going for it. Have <laughs> thriven prior to all of this business language being our... And what I, what I find the most fascinating about this, you were trying to make a point that was a contra-business principles point by using business language. <laughs> right. I was Which keying into the irony how, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no criticism of you. I, I just think it's, it speaks to how deeply into our view of pastoral ministry business principles have gotten. And, you know, I am someone who values a lot of what business principles bring to the table. So this is not a contrarian speaking. I regularly read Harvard Business Review. I regularly read secular leadership books and listen to secular leadership experts. So I'm not the guy who's just trying to say all of that should be thrown out. But the conversation Peterson is trying to have is to say, Hey, are we questioning all of that or are we just buying in wholeheartedly to something that says that the pastor's success or failure depends on what he does and what tasks he performs? Mm. And he actually uses this wonderful illustration that I've really come to appreciate over the years. It's in that second chapter. And so I referred back to it. This is why the book was my favorite book I've never read. He talks about this moment in Moby Dick. Have you ever read Moby Dick? I have not, but I know he does talk about this in other places, so I know where you're going, but go ahead. Okay, so I have not either, but there is this moment in Moby Dick where they are in the little dory, the rowboat, and they are getting ready to go after the whale. And there are however many people, four people or six people who are rowing, and in the bow of the, sh- of the little boat, there is the harpooner. And he talks about how the harpooner's role is to be still and inactive so that he can be ready to be active with his harpoon when the right moment comes. And if he jumps in and rows with the other rowing people, he is not going to be ready to do his job when the moment comes. His inactivity is an essential part of his role. Mm -hmm. And Peterson makes the strong and passionate suggestion that that kind of inactivity is essential to the pastor's role as well. The pastor has to be the person who is living in the supernatural realm. 
he is constantly reading his Bible and praying as if those were the most important tasks in the world. Because when the moment comes, he needs to be ready to address the moment from that perspective rather than from a busyness business perspective. Man, I, I, I think he's right, but it's so hard. I mean, going back to Dallas Willard's quote, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I can't remember where I was. I think I was pulling up to a fast food restaurant, and I saw on the reader board, before I even got to the menu, there was something like, do you need some blah, 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 blah in your busy day? And I thought, wow, you're assuming that every person that comes through this line is busy. And you're right. Like, this is a, mm-hmm. this is a cultural problem. And Peterson is living out a completely foreign experience where he is largely at rest, not busy, engaged in prayer and Bible study, ready to respond out of that. I go back a couple of episodes ago, you talked about being settled when we talked about controversy and how mm. like when you're when you're all fired up, all the silt is shaken up in the jar and the, the water's all murky. And if you just let it set long enough, all the silt goes back to the bottom. I picture Eugene Peterson as constantly in a state of having all the silt pushed to the bottom and he can just respond out of clarity. That's so contrary to the experience of driving through that drive through and having the advertiser know that I was a busy person. Yeah. You know, the other thing he pushes hard on is that the, the task of pastoring has to do with the soul of people. And if that's the case, we who are in ministry have to be settled in the sense that you're saying it well enough that in any given moment, we can respond from eternity to the person who is in front of us without our own unsettledness getting in the way. Yeah. And that's the responsibility of a pastor. That's uh, it's a big bar. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious, as you're reading this book and taking in this really foreign perspective that Peterson is arguing for, I'd love to know, just in your own words, what do you think we as the Church of America could practically do as a result? Like, how could we respond to this corporately in a way that would help shape our churches for the better? Well, you know, so this is interesting. There is an opportunity cost to every decision that we make, right? And I think we have to make a decision about what we want. And not we as the church in America, but each individual local church has to make a decision about what is the target that they're aiming for. Are they aiming for something that is program heavy? Are they aiming for something that is glitzy and glamorous? Are they aiming for something that's going to draw a very, very large crowd? 
what are we aiming for? Because the kind of pastoral ministry he invites us into results in 30 years at a church that's four or 500 people, not 5,000 people. And there were moments in Jesus's ministry where there were thousands of people drawn by the way he was doing his ministry. And so I'm not going to sit here and talk to you and say, there's got to be a one size fits all. But I do think his invitation is to recognize that if we want to go deeper with people, it is going to require us to reimagine how we use our time as pastors and the glitz and the glamour and the polish and the programs will have to take a backseat to the people, which means they won't be as good because there is a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources. And ultimately in our calendar, something is going to win. It's only going to be prayer if we make a formal choice to be the kind of, he uses these words, the subversive pastor and the apocalyptic pastor. And really, I think what he means by those things is being a pastor is never going to be what other people expect it to be. And being a pastor means living out of eternity rather than living out of the needs and urgencies of the present week. Mm. I love that perspective. I think I'm wrestling through at a practical level, then who gets the work done? <laughs> you know, you, you use the analogy of the rowers in Moby Dick. Who's doing the rowing then? If, if the pastor is in repose or if the pastor has a very confined set of duties, if you will. And so I guess one thing you said a moment ago is is you run the risk of it not getting done as well. And I think that that is potentially true and potentially false. It really depends, in my opinion, on who steps up to do the thing. I think that you are a rather talented fellow and can do quite a lot of things. But I suspect that somebody somewhere can edit videos better than you can. And somebody somewhere can do the bookkeeping or the taxes or pay the insurance on the vehicles better than you can. And some people can do it worse than you can. So I, I just think it, it really depends on who steps up. But maybe does Peterson even talk about who should be the rowers and how to put the right butts in the right seats? He doesn't. His whole life, he was the single pastor at the church. So it was him. And he basically says, you, you got to do some of that stuff. And that's fine. And I'll tell you, in my context, there aren't a lot of people who can do a lot of those things. Some of those things, there are definitely people who can do better than me. Absolutely. But, and I suspect this is an issue for all churches, but maybe not. The number of needs outweighs the number of volunteers. Mm-hmm period. And so that's why I end up evaluating and saying, okay, so we have to decide in a world of limited resources, 
who we want to be, and direct our resources there. Yeah, that sure reminds me of things that God's been teaching me about Sabbath and the idea that if it doesn't all get done, is Sabbath still worth it? Mm, and Exactly. So if the video doesn't get edited, for instance, I mean, we're just picking on one topic here, so not that it's the end-all be-all, but if the video doesn't get edited because you were doing pastor things. uh, Let's say because I was praying. Yeah, right. You spent two hours in prayer instead of two hours editing a video. Is it worth it? That's a, I mean- yeah, it's a hard thing to argue against theologically, right? But practically speaking, I think people would like chafe at that. Absolutely. Well, and I'll tell you right now, there is no senior pastor in the world that I know who is hiring staff pastors so that they can pray for two hours a day. Nor do <laughs> sure. I know any senior pastor who will be like, would be okay with that on any level. That doesn't make it right or wrong. Just because the consensus of American senior pastors is X doesn't make X good or bad. But I will say it is not the expectation. Sure. So having read it, uh, and I just can't wait to read it, do you think this is a book that only pastors should read? Should should our listening audience like have shut this podcast off a while ago uh, unless they have pastor in their title? Um, who would benefit from this book? That's an interesting question that I had not thought about. Uh, First of all, I I think anybody who is in a church, it would be a fascinating conversation to have with the pastor or whatever pastoral leadership you have access to. It is worth reading this book Not to try to tell your pastor how to do his or her job, but in order to have an informed conversation, say, hey, I know this is Peterson's model for how ministry should be done, but to use it as a springboard to learn from your pastor what his or her model for ministry is, and to recognize that there are a number of different models. And this is one of the hidden things Uh, You know, okay, let me ask you this. As a person who goes to church regularly, in the last 20 years, how many different churches have you been a part of? Oh, gosh. Just off the cuff without counting them, uh, we'll say a dozen. Okay. How many of those church decisions have you made because of the pastor's philosophy of ministry? (laughs) Uh, well, to be honest, a couple, um, actually that plays a pretty large part in how I choose a church or whether or not I stay at a church. Uh, so Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that was the intended answer, but I, I do, that matters to me a lot actually. And there was no intended answer. I didn't know your answer and I was curious to ask it because, It doesn't make the list of normal answers, I suspect. The pastor's philosophy of ministry is very different from, is he a good preacher? It's very different from, did I like the worship team? 
but I suspect it will be profoundly indicative of the church's culture in far more ways than a parishioner will understand unless the parishioner has informed him or herself of the ideas that surround a philosophy of ministry. Mm. And this book is a great example of a philosophy of ministry. Sure. Right. Uh, Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the opportunity to be informed is wonderful. I also think of, I don't know if you remember this, but when we both at different times, but we both served in the same church as interns while we were getting our undergrad degrees. And oh yeah, the pastor of that I was church, talking about my internship at that church actually, like literally yesterday. That's crazy. Well, I, as you would, because it's in the hometown that you are now live in. But I remember one of the things from that internship that really stuck out to me. There was a guy in the church, and in my memory, at least. It wasn't a guy with a title or any official role in the church. It's just something he took upon himself because he found it valuable. He, every single week, would wash the pastor's car. And he just felt like it was his ministry to make sure that that task was taken care of for the pastor so that that just had a nice crisp look in the parking lot. And that obstacle to... Uh, a parishioner coming in and, and paying attention and whatever was just gone. And it was a way to serve that pastor and whatever. I just felt like, I feel like if we were to try collectively to free up our pastors to live into the vision that Peterson is creating, it's going to take people doing mundane things like that and owning that task as just their contribution to the ministry. Because if if my pastor is not washing his or her car, that potentially frees them up to be doing much, much better things with their time. Absolutely. That's an awesome point. I would say this uh, as well, however. The pastor's philosophy of ministry will inform what he or she does with the free time you create for him or her. And so if you wash the pastor's car and the pastor is go- is driven by busyness or tasks, there's always another task and always another reason to be busy. Mm. And again, without trying to say there's a right or wrong philosophy of ministry here, the philosophy matters. And the success every one of us has a limited amount of success in living out our own philosophy, right? I can, my brokenness inhibits my successful living out of my own philosophies in life. And so there is my philosophy of ministry, and then there is my lived out reality of ministry, and those are not the same. Uh, My hope is that there is some continuity between the two, but only a crazy person would claim to be 100% living out their own philosophy on something. Right, right. Well, and I will say also that the ministry ethos of the church, which takes its cue in large part from the pastor's philosophy of ministry, uh, will also guide folks in determining what 
what would be the most helpful thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. I, I personally find a little bit of vanity in the clean car idea, and it's all very directed at one particular person uh, serving just the pastor, which is not a bad thing, but I don't think we all need to be just gathering around and making sure the pastor can do ministry. Like, I think we're supposed to be doing ministry, um, and and the pastor is supposed to be equipping us for that. So, um, I guess what I'm saying is, it, it doesn't. It's not all just let's gather around one person and make sure that they're freed up to you know change the world for Christ. It's it's going to take everybody doing their part. And whatever their part is, is largely going to be dictated by the ministry ethos of the church. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I would love to have you read this book sometime and then us have a different discussion based on what you got out of this book, because this has been entirely the book through my eyes. And as I turn towards our audience, I'm curious about a couple of things. First of all, if we think about books that are detailing out a philosophy of ministry, those of you who are in the ministry sphere or who aren't, are there other books that you have read that kind of capture this philosophy of ministry thing and maybe articulate a different philosophy of ministry? I'm also curious, when you look at uh, what pastoring means in the local church you are a part of, what does ministry mean there as well? I'm just super interested to have those of you who are listening jump in on this conversation about pastoring. And we didn't even get to the key word that makes it into the title, the contemplative pastor, and really what that word is all about. So I'd love to get people's thoughts on what a contemplative pastor would be, what the philosophy of ministry their church lives out is, or what kind of books they uh, find helpful in thinking about these things. Uh, But, you know, shifting gears from all of that, uh, Josh from Oregon, I'm just curious what you have been thinking about this week, uh, since you clearly didn't think about this book because you're not reading it. <laughs> no, but I did enjoy seeing the book through your eyes, and I'm, I'm super excited to read it. Oddly enough, my thought dovetails with this perfectly, and almost like in a I'm ashamed to talk about it kind of way, because I'm recognizing the way in which I fit the cultural expectations and the cultural norms much more than the the settled state that Peterson is promoting. And I guess what I'm realizing, I've had a, this is not the only time on the podcast I've said this, I've had a lot of life lately, just lots mm. and lots of things coming at me. And I'm realizing that when you run yourself to the margin in your just normal tasks, you have no margin, right? I, I know it's dumb to mm-hmm. say, it's it's obvious, but I have so filled my schedule that there is no room for life to happen. And it's not like life stops happening. Life keeps happening, and I don't have the space for it. I don't have the capacity for it. In fact, we are recording on 
an alternate day because I had to call you and say, I had life happen. I can't record on our normal time. It, it was a good thing. It's fine. But it's still just, I don't know, life continues to just come and come and come and come. And I feel like almost for me since COVID, maybe I am less resilient or maybe just life has been that much extra because that's just the time in life I, I'm in. I don't know. I feel like it's just come in bigger and heavier waves for me. And I don't have the margin for it because I've already used up all my margin in just the tasks that I'm trying to accomplish. So I long for that unhurried life. And that is uh, a long ways off, honestly. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a, it's a hard thing to find a way to live out because it's so profoundly countercultural. Fortunately, it is also an inspiring thing, so it is worth working towards, even if it is not a place we ever arrive. <laughs> right. But, you know, I'll tell you what, even recording this on the podcast and putting it out there for listeners to potentially hold me accountable to, and I know it like my wife listens to this. Like, so in a few years, when I'm done with all the education I intend to get, and I'm just, I'm living out the ministry calling I feel God has given me, am I then living settled or am I still striving for more? Am I still racking my schedule full of busyness? And to be honest, like I have all these goals, I have all these things I want to do. And so I don't, I don't really want to give those up. I, I kind of envision continuing to press and press and press and press. And so like to put it out here and say, this is actually a desire and I may not have the fortitude to even like go through with my own desire. I don't know. It's, it's a really complicated thing to talk about. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about you? What else are you thinking about besides Peterson's book? You know, this also dovetails a little bit with what he was talking about. But, uh, you know, I was thinking this week a lot about reading the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I'm a reader, and I have books that I'm constantly reading. I have different categories of books that I'm constantly working on. I have a sort of mindless book that I'm reading right before bed. I have a an audiobook that I listen to that requires my full attention. And so I don't typically want to listen to it unless I have 20 minutes or half an hour. So a lot of times I listen to it when I run, those kinds of things. Then I have an audiobook that I'm typically listening to in the shorter amounts of time in my life. And with all of that in mind, I was thinking about the fact that I read the Bible only in the little segments of time that I designate as Bible reading moments. It is not a book I'm reading. Does that mm -hmm. distinction make sense? Yeah. And I just found myself wondering earlier today, what would it look like to add the Bible to the books I'm reading and help it escape the little crevices of time that are spiritual reading time and get into the larger pool of times I'm just reading stuff. Yeah. You know, I've thought about this from time to time because I keep track of all my reading on Goodreads. So my current read shelf would, if I put the Bible on there 
theoretically, always have the Bible on there. I would never get that dopamine rush of like finishing a book or rereading a book. And so what I really want is for Goodreads to break up the Bible into its individual 66 books so that I could put on there, I'm reading Jeremiah. And then when I finish Jeremiah, Mm. I could say, I finished. And I get that little dopamine rush, like I finished a book. That's what I really want. That would like, it's as nerdy as it sounds, that would legitimately help me. You know, so for a while I was using NIV put out a printing of the Bible in like six different volumes. I forget what it's called, and I've recently lent it to somebody, so I don't have it on my shelf behind me. I have an ESV version of the same thing, where it's the ESV Reader's Bible. You can put the the different individual volumes of the ESV Reader's Bible on your shelf, which is at least Mm. close to that. It's it's getting there. It's getting there. It's not quite there. The uh, the ESV Journal Bible that has it that has released it as individual books. You could pull off that if you wanted to. Oh, so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) There is. I'm pulling up Goodreads as we speak. Oh, yep. Here it is. ESV Illuminated Scripture Journal, Jeremiah. That's cool. All right. Well, this has been another uh, episode of Solving Your Spiritual Problems, the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. (laughs) Uh, That's so true. Um, Awesome. Okay. Well, since we've solved everyone's spiritual problems, we all now are going to be avid Bible readers. Uh, It must be time for the Witch Josh. And this... The editor doesn't add music in, so I've been working to add music in lately. Yeah, the editor's a schmuck. Uh, So, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Uh, This week's Witch Josh question would have actually ruined the title of this podcast. Witch Josh was originally born with a different name. I should have done the music now, shouldn't I? I did the music at the wrong time. Whoops. Sorry, (laughs) listeners. But uh, a good editor can fix that. Yeah, he's not going to, though. The answer to this week's question is me. I was originally named Jason or Michael or something. uh, (laughs) Those aren't even close. No, no, not even close. Uh, And I I am going to get this story completely muddled up. But the story is something to the effect of... My parents had agreed that my dad would name the girls and my mom would name the boys. And so my mom had come up with a name and that was what I was going to be named, whatever it was, Jason, Michael, whatever it was. And then at some point when it came to to writing it down on the actual birth certificate, my dad intervened and said Joshua or vice versa. I don't remember, but... There was a determined name that I was going to be called, and then one parent or the other bucked the system and <laughs> forced their will upon my life, and I have been Joshua ever since. <laughs> 
Well, hey, it's the greatest name in the world. So it's uh, you, you came out on top. Yep, absolutely. And plus, then it would have been like on the phone with Josh and Michael, and that would have been a completely different situation. Yeah, we'd have had to talk about board games or something because, you know, just totally different. Yeah, completely different. Wouldn't have been good. But All right. Well, are we on for another one of the On the Phone with Josh conversations next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. All right. Talk to you then. All right. Talk to you later. What?